Welcome to The Word at First Prez. Over the spring and summer, we are doing a sermon series called Philosopher Kings. The goal of this sermon series is to examine the life philosophies of members of our congregation and how those life philosophies intersect with the Bible. Our hope is that you will find that everyone has something to teach us about life, faith, love, and our relationship with God. I hope you enjoy. Listen to God's word for you as I read from Genesis chapter 41. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my faults today. Once Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard. We dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own meaning. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each according to his dream. As he interpreted to us, so it turned out, I was restored to my office and the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent for Joseph and he was hurriedly brought out of the dungeon. When he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not I. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is to do about it. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt. After them, there will arise seven years of famine and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land. This is the word of the Lord. Our second scripture reading today, it comes from Genesis. It's a continuation of the story we were just reading about Joseph. And Joseph continues, Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plenteous years. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to befall the land of Egypt, so that the land may not perish throughout the famine. The proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find anyone else like this, one in whom is the Spirit of God? So Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only with regard to the throne will I be greater than you. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh, and he went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plenteous years, the earth produced abundantly. He gathered up all the food of the seven years when there was plenty in the land of Egypt and stored up food in the cities. He stored up in every city the food from the fields around it. The seven years of plenty that prevailed in the land of Egypt came to an end, and seven years of famine began to come. Just as Joseph had said, there was a famine in every country, but throughout the land of Egypt, there was bread. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So if you have been here for any amount of time or you've been watching online, you probably know that we're doing a sermon series called Philosopher Kings. And this term, Philosopher King, it comes from Plato, who believed that the people who we should be following 
the people who are the best leaders are people who have studied philosophy. And this is not just true of your trained philosopher, but of ordinary average people. Now the truth is that everybody in here, every single person, you live according to a life philosophy. Whether you have really thought through what that life philosophy is, that is the question. And so I sent out a request to the congregation back in January, and I said, I would love to know about your life philosophy, the things that have propelled you forward in your life, molded and shaped the direction of what you've done. And I figured I'd get a few here or there, but I received so many, and they were so thoughtful that I was able to create an entire sermon series around these life philosophies. And so each week, we start with one or more of your life philosophies, and then we see where they intersect with the Bible, where they diverge. And I think you will see that everyone here has something to teach us about life, love, faith, and our relationship with God. Now today happens to be July 4th. Not all the time that July 4th falls on a Sunday. And I thought that to begin today, I'd talk a little bit about Independence Day. Now you all know what Independence Day is about, right? <laughs> of course you do. Funny enough, though, there are many Americans who have no idea what Independence Day is about. They have no clue. And I wanted to start by showing you a little video. This is a guy who went to a beach, and he just started asking people on July 4th, hey, what are we exactly celebrating today? So let's take a look at this. What country famously broke away from England to start their own country in the late 1700s? I have no idea, man. I'm, I don't know. <laughs> What are we celebrating on the 4th of July? Exactly? Our independence. A little more specific. It's the day that we overtook the South. And it's the day that, um, it's our independence. It's, that's why we have the fire. From the South. From the South, exactly. So it was the victory of the Civil War? Yes. 4th of July? Yes. The Declaration of Independence was signed by who? Just name one person. Um, Abraham Lincoln? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Sorry. Not? What year was that Declaration of Independence? Was it 1964? <laughs> 84? 1984. 84? I don't know. Oh, no. We're 1864? 1864. I don't know. This country, no wonder this country's in trouble. Well, what country did we declare independence from? back in the 1770s. I don't know. You don't know? No. It's, it's kind of the reason we celebrate the 4th of July. I have no idea. No idea, but you're still going to be celebrating. I'm though. still going to celebrate. Well, you should have your celebration revoked. Getting people's uh, thoughts on uh, what country we broke away from when we declared independence back in 1776. <laughs> Didn't know. America celebrates the 4th of July. Is it Independence Day when you got rid uh, re of uh, Mother England, right? Yes. We've <laughs> got foreigners that know why we you know, Well, uh, the everybody know uh, why uh, we celebrate it more than Americans. Everybody do. loves to get rid of their like, you know, like the the, the, col the colonizers, so it's uh, it's always That's good. That's incredible. <laughs> it's always good. Thanks for knowing that. That's yeah. incredible, man. Have a good one. Have a good vacation. See ya. Good stuff. Gives you a lot of faith in America, right? <laughs> All right, so just so we're clear, Independence Day, it's July 4, 1776, when there was a group of leaders among the colonists who signed a document known as 
the Declaration of Independence. This made its way all the way out to King George III in England. So he gets it, and of course that starts the Revolutionary War, where the colonists go to battle with the British army, trying to get rid of the governance of the British monarchy. Now, what's important about the Declaration of Independence is that in many ways it would establish the way that we as Americans think about freedom and independence from that point forward. So we win the war against England and ultimately we have to form our nation which starts with what? The Constitution, right? And then very soon after that they make ten amendments to that Constitution that are known as the Bill of Rights. Now, James Madison, he created the Bill of Rights because there were calls from many states to have greater constitutional protection for individual liberty. And what many people do not realize is that this was a very important moment in the history of the world because never before had a country gone to such great lengths to ensure individual freedoms, to make sure those were written in to that governmental structure and to restrict the powers of government. And so the Bill of Rights was really a message to the rest of the world that when it comes to the United States of America, that freedom of the individual is one of the highest ideals that we hold true. Now, we do have to be clear about this. At the time the Constitution was written, that only applied to a subset of people who occupied this continent, primarily white men with property. So if you were part of the Native American tribes who were here, that did not apply to you. They were here long before we stepped foot on this continent. If you were a woman, it did not apply to you. And it did not apply to the thousands of African slaves who were being shipped over to the United States every year. And this gives you a sense of kind of where it started. Now, the interesting thing is that that principle of freedom that is really woven into our society, that is the same principle that has caused every generation to ask the same question. Is America living up to its promises? Is America living up to its promises? And each generation has had to ask that question in different ways and has also had to ask that about different groups of people. Because here's the thing about freedom that we don't often realize, is that you'd never quite have achieved it. Freedom is always a moving target. Because humans, we are masters at discriminating against each other. I mean, we are really good at it. So, if it's not about your race, it's about your gender. If it's not about your gender, it's about your sexual orientation. If it's not about your sexual orientation, it's about your nationality. It's not about your nationality, it's about your religion. It goes on. We are pros, my friends, pros at figuring out one, why one group is better than another. But the great thing about this country is that we constantly have the opportunity to redefine what freedom means and we can change our laws to reflect those ever-evolving definitions of what freedom is. And so, on this day, 1776, they signed the Declaration of Independence and those famous words, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Everybody here has the opportunity to figure out what does that mean to them? What does that mean to you and how do we achieve it? And that 
is what I want to use to turn to our life philosophy today from Mr. Larry Tidrick, who I believe is in the back right there. So if you all know Larry at all, this is not going to shock you what he sent to me. So when he sent me his life philosophy, it wasn't anything that he had written. He sent me a quote from Ayn Rand. That's who he sent over to me. And Ayn Rand, for those of you who don't know, she is a writer, a thinker, and she created the intellectual foundation for what is known as libertarianism. So I want to read this quote and tell you a little bit about Ayn Rand. Here's a quote. The question isn't who is going to let me, it's who is going to stop me. I swear by my life and my love of it that I will never live for the sake of another man nor ask another man to live for me. The smallest minority on the earth is the individual. Those who claim or those who deny individual rights cannot claim to be defenders of minorities. Okay, so let me tell you a little bit about Anne Rand, who she was. So, Anne Rand, she was originally from Russia. Her original given name was Alyssa Rosenbaum. And she grew up, you can see her there. She is actually the one all the way to the right on your screen. So, she was born in St. Petersburg, Russia on February 2nd, 1905. And she was born into a Russian Jewish home. Her father was a pharmacist, did very, very well for himself with his business, gave his family a very good life. And Alyssa was a very precocious young girl. At the age of eight, she was writing screenplays. At the age of 10, she was writing novels. And she was kind of obsessive about politics. It's odd for a 10-year-old, but she very much loved politics. She just loved reading about it, trying to understand it. This was very important to her. But what happened at age 12 would be the defining moment in her life. So in 1917, Russia underwent a revolution. And that revolution is where Vladimir Lenin came to power, and he transformed Russian society into a socialist society. And what happened as a result of that is that her father's business collapsed. So they had enjoyed a lot of prosperity up until that point. All of a sudden, they were in a place where they were suffering. And they were suffering to the degree that often they were on the brink of starvation. And this had a huge impact on the way that Alyssa looked at the world. Because essentially, due to this revolution and what had happened, she couldn't enjoy the life that she had had. And so as a result, she developed an intense acrimony towards socialist thinking and socialist governments. They make it through this process of dealing with the starvation, and she decides she's going to become a writer. And so she ends up adopting the name Anne Rand as her writing name. And it comes from the word ayan, meaning I, that's the first part of it, and Rand is the Cyrillic version of her original name. Now, in 1926, she ends up making a trip to the United States. She's coming over here to see family who lives actually in Chicago. Now, at that time, to get over here, you had to do it by boat, right? This is not exactly like you're not jumping on a plane necessarily and getting over there. There wasn't that commercial travel in the same way. So it takes her forever to get here. And, of course, at first, she has to get to New York. And when she sees the Manhattan skyline, she is so awestruck by the beauty of it that she actually said that she cried. And she got off the boat. She started walking around America. She loved the culture. And she decides she's not going back to Russia. She overstays her visa. She moves out to California. And she gets a job in Hollywood as a screenwriter, 
where she was very successful for a period of time. But her real literary contributions came from two books that she wrote. The first one was The Fountainhead, the second one was Atlas Shrugged. So both of these books are ultimately bestsellers. These are books that have been read by millions of people to this day. But at the core of these novels is the idea that the freedom of the individual is paramount. So her perspective on the world was that you should be able to live your life in whatever way you see fit with as little government intervention as possible. And this makes sense, right, given how she grew up? I mean, she grew up when Lenin took over, all of a sudden, their lives were being overseen by the government in every way. And so to her, this was really important that you could live however you want to. She also believed in what was known as free market economics. So she was a big proponent of this idea. The notion that your financial success or failure rides on your shoulders. So to her, the way you make the most productive, the most hardworking citizens is you give them nothing. <laughs> give them absolutely nothing. It's a, much, it's a kind of a survival of the fittest mentality, right? You're either going to survive or you're perish. Take away all the social safety nets. And she believed that most people, under those circumstances, that they are going to not only survive, but thrive. Now today we read the story of Joseph. And Joseph is, in many ways, a reflection of Ayn Rand's philosophy. I'm going to take you to the story of Joseph. Sound good? I mean, I'm sure you guys remember it when we talked about it eight years ago, but, you know, let's do a little, little brush-up recap on it, right? Okay, so Joseph, he is the son of a man named Jacob. Now, there's three names from Genesis that you should remember. It is Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Abraham has a son, Isaac, and then Isaac has a son, Jacob. Jacob has all these sons. Now, there are two sons who he loves the most. One son is Joseph, the other son is Benjamin. They were born from his wife, do you remember her name? Rachel, okay, <laughs> all right. And then all of his other sons come from this other wife he has whose name is Leah. Now, that clearly doesn't really make all the other sons feel great, right? That Jacob just really loves Joseph. And on top of it, Joseph is pretty arrogant. So one day they get tired of it and they're like, you know what? We're going to kill him. We're just going to get rid of him because, you know, we don't need this. So he comes out to a field. They're about to do the deed and, just, and kill him off. And they decide, you know what? Wait, we could actually make some money off of this guy. So they end up selling him into slavery. So he ends up getting transported down to Egypt. And once he gets down there, he's sold into the house of Potiphar, who is known as the captain of the guard, which means that he's probably part of Pharaoh's personal security detail. Now he gets to work in the house, he's working around. Now, of course, Joseph is an incredibly handsome young man and attracts the attention of Potiphar's wife, who wants to have an affair with him. And so he's like trying to get away from her, dodging all this stuff. And eventually she corners him, grabs for him, he runs away, she rips his tunic from his body. Unable to explain how she got his clothes into, his, into her hands, she says, oh, Joseph tried to rape me. This, of course, means that now Potiphar is going to have to put him into prison. So he gets put into prison, and while he's there, the chief jailer notices that everything that Joseph does seems to go well, so he puts Joseph in charge of all the other prisoners. And while they're there, there are two members of the royal court who end up going down, and they become part of 
the, the prison population. So it's the chief baker and the cupbearer to Pharaoh. Now once these two get down in there, they both have dreams and they wonder, well, who's going to interpret these dreams for us? Because they believed at the time, just so we're clear on this, that you didn't just come up with dreams. The dreams were placed in your mind by God and that it could tell you about the future, but you needed somebody to interpret it. And it just so happens that Joseph's specialty is dream interpretation. So he says, hey, I'll tell you what's going to happen. So he hears the dreams and he says, okay, here's the deal. Here's the rundown. You, the chief baker, you're going to get executed. You're going to be hanged. Not a great fortune, right? That'd be like opening it up at the Chinese restaurant and you're like, mm, not good. Okay. <laughs> and then the other guy is going to be returned to his position, right? The cupbearer, he'll be returned up. So this is exactly what happens. The baker gets hanged. The cupbearer gets returned to his position, but he forgets about Joseph, right? Doesn't remember him. And then two years later, Pharaoh has the dream. That's what you heard Katie read this morning. And in that dream, nobody can interpret what it means. And that's when the cupbearer says, oh, wait, I remember there was this guy who actually predicted all these things. You should talk to him. He might work. So they bring Joseph up and he hears the dream and he says there will be what? Seven years of plenty, seven years of famine. And that he has a plan. He's like, you should store up grain during the seven years of plenty so that the population can survive during the famine. And so Pharaoh is so taken by Joseph that he says, hey, well, you clearly know what you're doing. Let's get you in charge of this. So he puts him in charge. He makes him what is known as the Grand Vizier, which is the second highest position in Egypt right below Pharaoh. And so what happens is when we see Joseph go from slave to savior, all in one fail swoop, we can see how he is a reflection of Ayn Rand's philosophy, right? Think about it. This is a guy who is in really dire straits, bad situation, right? And he uses his natural talents, he uses his grit, his will, his determination to become successful. And so in many ways, Joseph embodies Ayn Rand's philosophy of self-sufficiency. But here's the question I would pose to you. Is that the way that the people who wrote this story would have expected us to interpret the story? And I ask that question because we live in the West, right? And here in the West, this is what, July 4th, it's Independence Day. We care a lot about the individual in the West. And that influences the way that we read stories. So when we read a story, this is what happens. We are always looking for the hero. Who's the individual who I'm going to focus on in the story? That's what we do when we read a story in the West. So we look for the hero. Who's the hero in this story in Genesis, the one we just read? Joseph. It's his story, right? Are you focused on what's happening to him? Do you care what happens to anybody else, really? Like the chief baker, poor guy? You're like, eh, well, you know what happens. So, but Joseph, right, he's the one. It's his story. We want him to succeed. And that makes sense to us in the West. But you have to realize that for the people who wrote this story, that's not actually the way they would have looked at it. Because at that time, when they were writing this story, the individual was not nearly as important as the community. So at the time this was written, these people lived in very close, tight-knit communities. I mean, it's not like today where you're all separate out. You were in these close communities, you were together, you depended on each other. You needed each other if you were going to be able 
to survive. And so when the ancients would have read this story, the payoff was not Joseph's individual accomplishments. The payoff was how Joseph was able to save the community that he was supposed to serve. Because why does he become the second most powerful man in Egypt? What's his job? His job is storing up grain, right? He wants to make sure that there's enough food for everyone to eat. And as a result of that, he ends up saving his family from starvation. So do you see? He saves the community. So we're putting the emphasis in the wrong place. We tend to emphasize Joseph and his individual accomplishments, whereas they would have seen it as, no, God used Joseph to save the Israelites. It was the effect of the individual on the community that mattered more than the individual accomplishments of that person. Are you with me on this? Okay, so what that means is that when you have somebody who is an individual who sacrifices for their community, is that what Joseph does? Does that sound like anybody else who we spend a lot of time talking about here? (laughs) Sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? Jesus, individual, sacrifices for the community. And that's a theme you see throughout the Bible. So when a person... An individual is willing to sacrifice for the benefit of the community. The point of the Bible is to tell us that benefits the entire world. Now, as much as Joseph is a reflection of Ayn Rand's philosophy, his story also points out a deficiency in the way that she looks at the world. Because I don't think anybody in here, like just, let's, let's just step back and look at the way that she grew up. Do you blame her for feeling the way that she did about her society? And moving here? No, I mean, if you're living in a society where the government restricts individual freedoms and is dictating everything you have to do, that feels oppressive, right? Would we agree with that? Of course. But then going to the opposite extreme, where all that matters is the individual, I don't think that's necessarily good as well. Because here's something that happens with Ayn Rand's philosophy, which is that she believes in what is known as hyper-individualism. Now, hyper-individualism means that what really matters more than anything else is what? You, the individual, right? That's really all that matters, which can create a morality where you, as the individual, that's all that matters. And so if that's all that matters, you're not probably going to be willing to sacrifice for the benefit of the community. Because what are you mostly focused on? Your own personal happiness, right? So the fact is, that can hurt society as much as a socialist government can. Now, the thing about Ayn Rand that you have to realize, I don't know if you've ever read about her life, her life is fascinating. I mean, she is a remarkable woman. There is no doubt about that. And I think what most people don't realize is that not everybody is as self-sufficient as Ayn Rand was. Like, not everybody's gonna be like her. Not everybody is going to be able to have the resourcefulness and the grit and determination to make it and survive in the way that she did. And I think that a lot of people who subscribe to her philosophy assume that it's a universal philosophy, that really it applies to everyone. Whereas I think that what we have to remember is that she's kind of the exception to the rule. She's not really the rule itself. And let me give you proof of this. So if you look at human beings, how long have we been on this planet? We've been on this planet like 100, 200,000 years in terms of our species, we've been here. Now, if you look at that time, how we lived for most of our history on this planet, I'm not talking recently, 
I'm talking most of that time, we lived in little bands of about 100 people. That's how we went around. And we focused on each other. You needed those people, right? You needed to be with those people to survive. And so we evolved to be part of a community. It's built into our DNA. It is the rare person who is able to strike out on their own. It is the rare person who can go out on their own and just make it. Now today, that's much easier than it was. But for most of our history, it wasn't that way. And so most of us, the way our DNA works is we need a community to be there for us, to lift us up. We need the social support of being together. And the Bible has this nice middle ground between these two things, right? Because in the Bible, what it talks about is how a leader, somebody who is like Ayn Rand, like a Joseph, right? They have these ability to go out and do things on their own. But what do they do? They use that leadership ability to benefit the larger community as a whole. And so the beauty of the way the Bible talks about it is that those people who are like Ayn Rand can really benefit everyone else if they are willing to use their skills, not just for themselves, but for the benefit of the whole. And in a sense, that balance is what we're trying to do here in this church. What, are, what is the goal of being here? In my opinion, my hope for you is to make you the best Christian that you can possibly be as an individual. That's what I want to have happen for you. You become the best Christian you can be personally. I want to make sure you become that person who God intended you to be. But at the same time, we need you to give your gifts back to this church. I wrote an article in the Chimes for this month. And I talked about how the pastors, I mean, it was to me, but it's really the pastors. It's been a hard year for us. It's been a hard year because you guys have been struggling. Many of you have. Everybody's been going through different things. And we've been trying to be there for as many of you who are going through crisis as we can. And that's been tough because some people have a crisis. We've got to focus on that. And that comes at the exclusion of others. And so... Part of it is just to talk about, it's been hard going through this time where we've been trying to be there for everyone. And the fact is, is that now we're coming back together and you all have been separate from the church, have you not? I mean, you've been outside of it. This is, we're now just getting back together as a community. And the fact is that we as a church, we survive on the lifeblood of volunteerism. Like without you all, we can't really do it, right? Like there's no choir if they don't volunteer, true? Right. I mean, we could play a recording, but that's not probably going to work well. You all wouldn't like that. They give their time, and they make beautiful music for us. And the fact is, is that we need you all to come back and be a part and to give in that way. Because the truth is, I think the pastors are feeling a little burned out because we've had to do so much on our own lately. We've had to do it on, on our own. Now, you all give money, and you pay us, and we appreciate that. But we're only so many people, right? Whereas we need you all to step up. And to help out. And so we need your gifts. We need you to be a part of this. So when we call you and we talk to you and we say, hey, we can really use your help with this, please don't say no, as many of you have, because we call and they're like, I don't know. I've been kind of having fun going out and not coming on Sundays. It's been nice, you know? We need you back. We need your help. And we need you to be a part because we need you all to be that community. And if you're here and you give to us, we're going to be here for you when you need it most. We're going to be here for you through the best of times, through the worst of times, and we will make sure that we will support you no matter what because that's what a community does for each other. Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, 
please visit www.firstpresah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.